Let me do this. Let me pray, and then we will open God's Word this evening. Pray with me. Father, even still with those words ringing in our ears, you are faithful. You have been, you are, and you ever will be. Lord, what you say will indeed come to pass, and Lord, that is so unlike us many times. We are faithless, and yet even when we lack faith, you are faithful, and so we thank you for that. Father, now as we turn to your word, be faithful once again to us and teach us from these words. Uh, may we behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what a joy it is to be back in our study of Psalm 119 tonight as we continue in our series. Uh, as you know, if you've been with us on Wednesday evenings recently, through this magnificent acrostic poem centered around the glory of God's Word. It's been a good study. Hopefully you've been encouraged. So I'd invite you to make your way back there. Psalm 119. Uh, Specifically tonight, our verses are 65 through 72. If you've been keeping track, we'll consider together in our time this evening the tenth stanza, not to be confused with the tenth stanza, because the tenth stanza is actually the ninth stanza, which is made up of eight verses. Am I confusing you yet? All of which begin with the ninth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tate. If you're confused by that, just go to verse 65. Psalm 119, 65 through 72, a section that I've simply titled, The Goodness of God. The Goodness of God. Follow along with me as I read the text to begin. The psalmist continues. And he writes this, really a prayer, if you will, to God. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good. And do good, teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces." The goodness of God. You know, J.I. Packer, if you've ever read his classic work, his most famous book, what is it? Heard it somewhere. Knowing God. Uh, He writes this there about the attribute of God's goodness. Just listen carefully. He says this, goodness in God as in man means something admirable, attractive, and praiseworthy. Uh, When the biblical writers, he goes on to say, call God good, here's what they're thinking. They're thinking in general of all those moral qualities which prompt his people to call him perfect, and in particular of the generosity which moves them to call him merciful and gracious and to speak of his love. A.W. Pink likewise says in his book, the attributes of God, he says this, uh, the goodness of God refers to the perfection of his nature. God is light and in him is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5. There is such an absolute perfection in God's nature and being that nothing is wanting to it or defective in it and nothing 
can be added to it to make it better. And so Pink would go on to simply say this, and I think this is helpful. God is not only the, the greatest of all beings, but the best. And that's, that's a good description of the goodness of God. Let me, let me ask you tonight, do you believe that God is good? Good. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes, I love it. Well, let me ask you this. Do you believe that God is good all the time? Not only that God is the greatest, but that He's also the best. That's the question we're going to be searching our hearts this evening with. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of an interesting exchange, speaking of the goodness of God, between the rich young ruler. As you survey the Scriptures, you could do a study on the goodness of God. Uh, I'm reminded of an exchange between uh, the rich young ruler and Jesus recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark, perhaps you know it, where, wherein we find one of the most tucked in there, the, one of the most profound statements about the goodness of God. Do you remember Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And do you remember what Jesus said to him? It's kind of an interesting response from Jesus. He, he said, why do you call me good? And then this, no one is good except God alone. What was Jesus saying there? You see, I believe Jesus in that moment was pointing out to this man just how deficient sometimes our human notions of goodness truly are. The way we use the term, right? The way we even speak today. Listen, are you tempted on the one hand to say, God is good, and then go home and say, pizza is good, <laughs> Bacon is good. Coffee is good. Vacations are good. What do we mean by the goodness of God? We must be reminded, as Jesus was reminding this man, that when we say that God is good, He's not good in the same way that exercise is good, that marriage is good. Now, there's a kind of goodness Listen, that, that belongs to him uniquely and to no other being. See, when the Bible speaks of the goodness of God, it is referring, as we read earlier by Packer and Pink, it's referring to that perfection which alone belongs to this God and makes him God alone. Uh, li listen, uh, just to dive into the deep end here uh, for another minute in our introduction, listen, listen to how Thomas Manton puts it. God is originally good, good of himself, meaning which nothing else is, for all creatures are good only by participation and communication from God. He alone is originally good. Furthermore, Manton says, God is essentially good. He alone is essentially good, meaning not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is a super added quality, but in God, it is His essence. It is who He is by His very nature. Notice he goes on to say, and God is infinitely good. Just ponder this for a moment. Christian, the, the creature's good is but a drop, but in God there is an infinite ocean or gathering together of good. And not only that, but God alone is, listen, eternally and immutably good. For he cannot be less good than he is, as there can be no addition made to him, so no subtraction from him. Look, all of that to say this. God's goodness isn't just what He does to you and I. 
We're tempted to measure it that way, aren't we, at times? To say, oh, I know God is good because He does this for me, because my life looks like this right now. Isn't that a temptation? Beloved, what we find out here in this psalm and in this stanza is that this psalmist is going to push our conviction about what we, what we believe about God's goodness far deeper than our circumstances will go. And we need this. We need this. The goodness of God isn't just what He does. It is who He is in the very essence of His being. In fact, consider one more example for, and one more passage in Scripture with me just by way of introduction. Consider with me another memorable exchange and dialogue, this time in the Old Testament, between Moses and Yahweh Himself. You remember Exodus 33, verses 18 and 19, when Moses dared even to ask the Lord, I pray you, what, what did he say? He, he requested that God show me your glory. And how did God respond? What was his answer to such a bold request? God said, I myself will make, notice carefully, all my, not glory, but goodness pass before you. You see, Moses asked for God's glory, and God showed him his goodness. Let me think about this then. Why does this matter? What do we believe about God's goodness? Because the goodness of God is essential to the glory of God. And to conceive of a God that is any less good in any moment of your life than He truly and actually is would be to diminish and detract from the glory of God. And God forbid we don't do that. So let me ask you again tonight, do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that He is good all the time, even when you experience suffering and affliction and persecution. You see, isn't it true that whenever life becomes challenging or difficult, the first thing that we are often tempted to question and to doubt is God's goodness. Isn't that true? Why is that? I would suggest to you that is because we lack the convictions that the psalmist demonstrates here. And so we, we have much to learn from his example because it's clear in this passage, notice, maybe you noticed as we read it, that, that he is going through some kind of trial. Look again, verse 67, I was afflicted. Verse 69, the arrogant have forged a lie against me. Verse 71, I was afflicted. And yet, five out of the eight verses in this stanza begin with the Hebrew word for good and for goodness. Notice, I'll point them out to you, verse 65. You have dealt well, that's that word good, and it actually in the original shows up at the very beginning of the verse. Verse 66, teach me good discernment. Again, that word actually shows up in the beginning of the sentence. Verse 68, you are good and do good. Twice there. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better. It's that same, same root word. And though in the English it's buried there under a few words, in the original it's very obvious it's front-loaded to that verse. So five out of eight verses, look at the psalmist believes in the goodness of God even in the midst of his affliction and trouble. 
So we need to learn from him. Here's, here's your outline for tonight. If you're taking notes, the psalmist will see him exemplify for us three convictions that we must cultivate about the goodness of God in our afflictions. Three convictions that we must cultivate about the goodness of God in our afflictions. I'll just give them to you right out of the gate. The first is simply this. The goodness of God is purposeful in our afflictions. It is purposeful. We find that in verses 65 and 66. It is purposeful. Second, we're going to see that the goodness of God, the psalmist believes, is persistent in our afflictions. And we see that in verses 67 through verse 70. And lastly, the goodness of God is preferable in our afflictions. Verses 71 and 72. Let's work through these together. Notice first then, first conviction that we see the psalmist demonstrate the goodness of God is purposeful in our afflictions. And I need to explain what I mean by this and where I'm getting it from, but notice verses 65 and 66. What, what I mean by this is simply that, that, that God in His goodness, listen, is deliberately directing all things, including the trouble that you face the difficulties, the afflictions, the trials that you encounter, He's directing all of that purposefully for your good. There is a good purpose, we could say. There is a good intention behind all that happens to you as a child of the Most High King. Do you believe this? Christian, do you believe this this morning? And this this is tested, isn't it, in the fires of affliction. But notice how this comes across in this verse, verse 65. Here's the conviction, and it's stated in this profession, this acknowledgement. You, God, have dealt well. You've done good. With your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Do you hear that conviction coming through? That, that even in this psalmist's circumstances, he believes the purpose of God was still good. Notice first, the goodness of God is purposeful specifically he notes here, to those who belong to him. Did you, did you notice it's the psalmist says you've dealt well specifically with your servant. And not that God isn't good to everybody. In, in one sense, that is true. God is not just good to some. Psalm 145 verse 9 declares the Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. And yet here it is especially true that God is particularly and purposefully and specifically good towards His own people. You can write down Psalm 31 verse 19 declares, How great then is your goodness, listen, which you have stored up for those who fear you. Look, if God is good to all, then how great is His goodness to those who actually fear Him. And that is what the psalmist declares here. So there is a special and particular goodness that God has promised, that God has stored up, God has purposed, and God has reserved and planned for those who belong to Him. To those who are in a right relationship with Him. In fact, uh, it's, it's an interesting way that the, the psalmist puts it here. It's he uses a preposition that maybe isn't typical for us in the way we would speak about God being good to someone. Because this, you see, the psalmist doesn't actually 
or doesn't simply say that God has done good things to us. Did you notice? I don't know what your translation says, but that's not, that's not how he puts it here. Or even, he doesn't even say that, that, that God often does good things for us. No. And while those, those are true, the preposition here is, is, is actually relational, did you notice? It, and not merely transactional or directional. It's, it's the same preposition, by the way, that we find in that divine title that we use often of the Lord Jesus at Christmas when we speak of Him as Emmanuel, God, what is it? With us. Look, look at this. It's so interesting. The sense is here that He has dealt well. He has done good, not to, not for, but with us. So the sense is that we might say God always treats His servants as though we are in good standing with Him. This is relational. And then this is the conviction that the psalmist has, that God, Christian, listen, is always for us and not against us because He's with us. Therefore, all that God does with us, the way He treats us, the psalmist says, is good. And you might be thinking, well, man, that sounds really familiar. And like, this is the same conviction that I believe Paul expresses in Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And to those who are called according to His purpose. So, beloved, the goodness of God is purposeful. It's purposeful, particularly to, for those who belong to Him, His servants. Christian, if you're in Christ, rest assured, there is a good and gracious design behind, behind all of your experiences, whatever they are, whatever life throws at you, whatever God in His providence brings your way, Know this, that it is out of the goodness of His heart. Towards His children. Do you believe that tonight? I hope you do. Can you say with a psalmist, no matter what you've been through, Lord, you've dealt well with me. Maybe that's hard for you to say. I don't know what you've experienced in life. No doubt in a room this large, many have gone through very difficult trials. But if you're ever tempted well, to, to, to think and to believe that God has actually dealt poorly with you, my friend, let me encourage you, if you're in Christ, He's not dealt poorly with you. Because if you're in Christ, actually Psalm 103 verse 10 says He's not dealt with us according to our sins. Consider also Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? And so Matthew Henry writes, however God has dealt with us, we must own He has dealt well with us, better than we deserve, and all in love with design to work for our good. So God is purposeful. His goodness is purposeful in our affliction. But notice next, not only is the goodness of God purposeful specifically to those who belong to Him, still under this first heading, but the goodness of God is also purposeful in that it is in alignment with God's Word. It's not willy-nilly goodness. The psalmist adds here in the second line of verse 65, God's dealing with His own children is 
according to His Word. And that's helpful too, because it isn't just any definition of goodness here that we are guaranteed to have from God as His children. We can't say, well, we don't, we, we don't get to decide what that goodness looks like, what the standard of God's goodness is to His children. Instead, that goodness is according to His Word. And notice calling on the covenant name of, the, of, of God here, Yahweh, the psalmist reminds us also that God will be faithful to accomplish all that He said He will accomplish for us in this Word, in His revealed will. See, Christian, the, the good purpose of God has been spelled out for you on the pages of Scripture, and He will bring it to pass purposeful. It's planned. In fact, more than planned, it's written. He is all that he would, he said he would be, no more, no less. And so one one commentator says, in all God has done, he had neither exceeded nor fallen short of the limits of his revealed will. And so notice, therefore, What the psalmist's request is then to God in the next verse, verse 66. Because of this conviction that God's goodness is purposeful to His people according to His Word, and that He will be faithful to bring it to pass, notice Notice what the psalmist here is prompted to pray then. Instead of what we often pray in our trials, please do what I think would be good for me, the psalmist's prayer is here, look at verse 66, teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. It's an interesting request. But it makes sense, if you think about it, the psalmist goes from conviction straight to prayer, as he often does. And you see, if we are convinced that God will always be faithful to His own, according to His Word in every situation, then our prayers, listen, will change from God getting me out of the situation to fit my desires and they will become this, right? A prayer for God to give us wisdom to learn, to know, and to understand, and to discern the good that He is doing in and through our providential circumstances. And that's essentially what this prayer is. Uh, In fact, the word here for discernment can literally mean uh, taste in some passages, um, but figuratively, it, 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 it means judgment or discernment. In other words, it's, it's a term related in one sense to the senses, but we could say that this is then to have your spiritual palate fine-tuned to that which God says is good. Right? Not, not what we think is good, but what He says is good. That's what he prays for here. Teach me good discernment. And knowledge here just refers to spiritual insight. And so notice the reason also for this request. The second line here for in your commandments I trust or stand or believe. Um, This is the reason the psalmist gives behind his petition to God for discernment and knowledge, and it is this, because he actually believes God's Word and commandments. You see, here we find out that faith and a humble attitude of teachability and this this disposition towards the Lord comes before knowledge and understanding. 
And we understand this because we know the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. There is a prerequisite attitude in the heart that then leads to understanding in the mind. The psalmist had this attitude. The psalmist had come with the right disposition to ask for understanding. Spurgeon says, his heart was right, and therefore he hoped his head would be made right. He had faith, and therefore he hoped to receive wisdom. Uh, this, 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 this verb here for believe, it's the language of genuine faith. It's the same verb that we read in Genesis 15 and verse 6, when Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was counted or reckoned to him as righteousness, it is that entrustment of our souls. And it's interesting here, the object of this faith is, notice, uniquely commandments. And just think about that. It's not promises necessarily here, which is what we would typically think we would believe, right? We, we think we obey commandments, we believe promises, and it's interesting, the psalmist here actually says, we believe this, he believes the commandments. There is a sense then in which commandments must also be believed. Um, you know, I have an example of this every night when I tell my kids, um, Lay down, be quiet, and go to sleep. Those are all commandments from dad, and yet somehow when I close the door, I know they don't believe those commandments. Listen, there is a sense in which commandments must also be believed, and Thomas Manton writes this way. Certainly, there's a faith in the commandments as well as in the promises. We must believe that God is their author and that they are the expressions of His commanding and legislative will which we are bound to obey. Faith must discern the sovereignty and goodness of the lawmaker and believe, listen, that His commandments are holy, just, and good. Do you have that attitude towards God's commandments? Is your heart predisposed to faith in what God commands of you? Or do you doubt that those commands are for your good, that they proceed from a loving, all-wise, benevolent Father? You think about it, isn't, isn't doubt in the commandment and character of God really at the end of the day what precipitated the first sin in the garden? Eve was tempted by the serpent to question whether God had commanded what he had commanded, right? The psalmist, on the other hand, believed that God's commandments were good, and therefore he prayed for his taste to be conformed to them. You see, even when the psalmist couldn't explain his circumstances of affliction or, or the reason even for God's commands, isn't that true sometimes? You, you, you read something in the Scriptures and you're like, I, I don't understand why I'm being told this. Lord, do you, understand, do you know my circumstances? Well, what is the temptation? To, to distrust God's character isn't it? But the psalmist exemplifies this conviction. That even though he couldn't explain at times the commandments given to him, his circumstances, the trials he was facing, yet his posture was one of humble faith. He staunchly believed that God's promises, that God's purposes were good, while inexplicable in a given moment, they were still good. He believed that. You know, it reminds me of a famous quote perhaps you've heard from Spurgeon. 
He writes this, God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken, and when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. The psalmist learned to trust God's heart. So let me ask you this this evening, Christian, do you believe God is good to you all the time? Do you believe that his purpose for you as his child, even in affliction, even when you can't explain it, even when he gives you a command you don't understand, do you believe that his purpose for you is good? That the goodness of God is purposeful. There is a design to it. And the design is for your good. That's the first conviction. The goodness of God is purposeful in our afflictions. But notice the second conviction here. The goodness of God is persistent in our afflictions. It is persistent in our afflictions. Verses 67 through 70. Notice the psalmist goes on, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me, and with all my heart I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. You see, what we see from the psalmist in this middle section is the conviction then that even when everything about him and even within him is subject to change, the goodness of God never changes. Because it is fixed in the unchanging character of God. It's anchored in verse 68. See, this this is the same conviction found that if you were to read James chapter 1, verse 17, that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Remember how James puts it? Coming down from the Father of lights, and I love this picture, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. The picture is that of an ever-flowing, never-ending fount of goodness, the source of which is God Himself, and it doesn't flicker, it doesn't fade, it doesn't fail. All that God does is ever and always good because it flows from His character. It is who He is. Notice first, the goodness of God is persistent through our sins and weaknesses. Aren't you thankful for that? Psalmist says, even when he himself was unfaithful in sinning, God's goodness persisted towards him in discipline. Before I was afflicted, he says, I, was, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You see, the, the goodness of God didn't change, though He received chastening. And we are tempted sometimes to, to think that and to conclude that, aren't we? When we receive discipline from God's hand, chastisement from our Heavenly Father, what is the temptation to imagine, oh, God is no longer well disposed towards me. He's not treating me well. He's not being good anymore. And yet that, nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, the word here to go astray here was used to describe the wandering of sheep and the staggering of drunken men. Um, and, in the, and the participle indicates that this is characteristic of the psalmist before he was afflicted. And, and the word actually, uh, it, the wandering idea, it's used um, often, at least in, in Leviticus, to speak of even at times unintentional sins, sins committed in ignorance. And the psalmist here isn't so much, he's, I don't think he's downplaying his culpability here 
by using this term as much as he's just highlighting, look, the aimless and pointless default setting of sinful men who, apart from the grace of God's discipline, would never simply happen upon or wander into the path of obedience. It just doesn't happen that way. Only, notice, after his affliction here, brought about by God's discipline, does the psalmist finally find obedience. And the word of God, or the word, the word for afflicted here is a term uh, related to being bowed low in humiliation. Um, it's the same word in Deuteronomy 8, verse 16, where Moses would write, in, uh, God would say to Israel in the wilderness, or Moses would write, in the wilderness, God fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he, listen to this, might humble you, same word, bring you low, and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. It's the same idea. The lesson in this verse is the same. Sometimes, Christian, God's goodness looks like cutting you down. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Making you small. But our humbling is our good. One would say, one writer says, by affliction, God separates the sin which he hates from the soul which he loves. And notice the outcome and the fruit of God's discipline, his good discipline was greater attention to his word. But now... He says, but now I keep your word. Now I keep your utterances. The term word here is literally sayings or utterances or oracles referring specifically to that which is spoken by God. In other words, the trial had made the psalmist more closely tuned to hear God's voice. Affliction does that for us, doesn't it, sometimes? And that's a good thing. Christian, don't shrink from God's chastening hand or conclude that He's somehow mad at you. No, He loves you. That's why you're experiencing discipline. It's because He cares for you. It's because you're His beloved son and daughter. Think of Hebrews 12. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Spurgeon says, sweet are the uses of adversity. It puts a bridle upon transgression and furnishes a spur for holiness. So the goodness of God is persistent, listen, even through our sins. It just looks different, right? It's chastening. It's God's discipline but he's still good. But notice, second, the goodness of God is persistent. The psalmist says, because of God's character, because of who he is. Notice that the psalmist declares in verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. So here here we have the ground zero theological reason why the goodness of God never changes and always persists. And it's not found in us. It's not found in our circumstances. God is good in all His doing because the Bible declares that God is good in all His being. His acts proceed from His nature. Therefore, we should conclude, look, any, think about this then, any change in our perception of God's goodness to us cannot truly be a change unless we're willing to say that God Himself has changed and Himself ceased to be good. And so Spurgeon writes, we must never tolerate an instant's unbelief as to the goodness of the Lord. Whatever else may be questioned, this is absolutely certain, that Jehovah is good. His dispensations may vary, but His nature is always the same. 
Christian, is that a conviction of yours? Do you believe that not only does God do good, but that He is good, and that His doing good flows from His being good, and that that can never change, no matter what you experience in this life? You must have this conviction, or you might conclude something less about God than who He actually is. Notice the second line here, then, again, the psalmist's conviction about God and His goodness leads to supplication. He says, teach me your statutes. Cause me to learn. The declaration of the first line of who God is and what God does leads to the petition of this second line, God's goodness is the grounds for the psalmist's cry for instruction. And uh, statutes here are those, just those permanent laws which are engraved or inscribed. This is what the psalmist wanted to learn. He wanted to know the unchanging truth in God's ever, or in, in, in this ever-changing world. He wanted to know, he wanted to learn that which is sure, and ultimately what is found in the character of who God is. So, the goodness of God persists. It is persistent because of who God is, because of His unchanging nature and character and essence. And so we should long to learn what that is. But third, notice the goodness of God is persistent even through the sins of others. When we suffer because of the sins of others. And we see this in verses 69 and 70. And it's the arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. You know, maybe, maybe this is where you struggle, right? Maybe you don't, maybe these other convictions you have, you, you know God is good to you even in light of your own failures and weaknesses. You, you know God is good. He is in Himself essentially good, and that is your conviction, and yet when you're mistreated and when injustice happens to you or you experience evil and you see wicked men prosper, that's where you're vulnerable. Maybe this is where you struggle most to question God's goodness, to wonder if something has changed. Well, in such instances, We need to remind ourselves, as Asaph did in Psalm 73, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Charles Bridges writes, judging in unbelieving haste of his providential and gracious dealings, feeble sense imagines a frown when the eye of faith discerns a smile upon his face. Don't misread your situation. Don't misread your circumstances. If you're suffering at the hands of evil men, that doesn't mean God is not good. And notice the psalmist's situation, actually. He's still able to declare that God is good and does good, even in this circumstance. Notice, he says, insolent men swear, insolent men or the arrogant have have forged a lie against me. They smear upon me falsehoods, is sort of the language. Uh, insolent here is a term for, to describe men who are proud and presumptuous, people who slander the psalmist here in verse 21 of this psalm, um, They are those who wander from God's commandments. Uh, One commentator um, 
describes them this way. They, these men deride the psalmist, verse 51. They tell lies about him, verse 69. They oppress him, verse 122. And they try to ensnare him in verse 85. Uh, good definition um, of this kind of person is provided, if you're taking notes, in Proverbs 21, verse 24. Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride. And what were they doing? What were these men doing to the psalmist? Notice the verb here to forge in my translation is to smear, to plaster, to glue. It describes, it's a very picturesque way of describing um, a a mudslinging campaign designed to smear the reputation of this man. They painted over him with lies, in other words. They, They covered up his true character with a caricature. The word can also actually refer to putting something together haphazardly, right? Gluing something together, hence the translation forged in the New American Standard. In other words, in that, in that sense, the, the picture is that they artificially sort of slapped together, made up and fabricated a false picture of the psalmist for everyone to believe. They piecemealed, patched together a false narrative They weaved together a web of lies about this psalmist. They slandered him. Ever happened to you? And nobody ever found out the truth. Were you tempted in those moments to believe, God, what in the world? But notice, because of his conviction that God was still good and does good, even in light of that kind of suffering and slander, the psalmist is able to say here, I myself, though, with whole heart, with my whole heart, with all my heart, I will observe your precepts. You see here, instead of returning evil for evil, instead of questioning God's providence, His good purpose in His affliction, the psalmist resolves even more fervently and sincerely and entirely to obey the Lord. Christian, when you've been massively misrepresented, when lies have been believed about you, what do you do? What do you believe about God? Do do you wholeheartedly strive to keep and obey God's Word Now, in verse 70, notice he moves inward from actions to attitudes. Their heart is covered with fat. Um, It's an interesting phrase, difficult to understand here because it only occurs here in the Old Testament, but it seems to depict that which has become fat with fat, okay? It's, uh, therefore, something that's become insensitive or unfeeling. Uh, Similar language is used In other places, like Isaiah 6, verse 10, render the heart of this people insensitive, sort of a similar term there, their ears dull and their eyes dim, otherwise they might see and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. So there's this idea of insensitivity. Um, Same kind of language is used in Psalm 17, verse 10, they've Closed their unfeeling or literally fat heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. And so the, the picture I think here is that these proud men, not only do they do evil, but in their hearts they're insensitive to God's word. The picture is that they have no taste for God, they've no taste for his word because they've already become They've been, they're fat, they're filled, their luxury has led them to insensitivity. They are not sensible, Matthew Henry says, of the touch of the Word of God or His rod. But notice how this insensitive, unfeeling heart towards the things of God is the exact opposite of the psalmist's disposition towards God and His law. In the second line, By contrast, the psalmist says, 
but I myself, but I delight in your law. Do you love the word of God? Christian, do you love, do you delight in the law of God even when you're persecuted for it? Do you believe that it's good and it comes from a good father even when it makes your life harder than it seems for than 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 the wicked beloved your attitude towards the scriptures is often a good indicator as to what you believe about god specifically even your attitude to the law to God's rules and regulations can be telling about what you believe about the lawgiver. Do you see God's law as oppressive and heavy-handed? If you, if you understand the goodness of God, you would find that Jesus' yoke is easy and His burden is light. And that is what, that is the conviction that's demonstrated here in the psalmist. And so the psalmist was convinced the goodness of God is persistent through his own sin because of God's unchanging character and even when he suffered from the sins of others. It's persistent. You know, that when we perceive that God's dealings with us has changed, may we, not per, may we not conclude that He's stopped and ceased to be good towards us. May we have this conviction that the psalmist exemplifies. But notice, thirdly, this last conviction. The psalmist believed that the goodness of God was not only purposeful in His affliction, not only persistent through his affliction, but that it was also preferable in his affliction. That is verses 71 and 72. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Now, you don't see this in your translation, perhaps, but the last two verses here actually begin the exact same way in the Hebrew text, and that is this, it, it, it is good for me. That's, that's what begins both of these verses, it is good for me, it is good for me. And notice the conclusion then of the psalmist now is first that, that, in, that in verse 71, that the goodness of God with affliction is more preferable than a life without trouble. You see that he believes, he's convinced that to have affliction and the goodness of God is preferable to have no affliction and no goodness. (laughs) He says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. You know, we say that to each other, don't we, when we're exercising sometimes or we're doing something difficult or taking bitter medicine? It's good for you. It's good for you. The same refrain in the principle is found here. Spurgeon writes, even though affliction came from bad men, it was overruled for good ends, though it was bad as it came from them, it was good for the psalmist. It benefited him in many ways, and he knew it. Christian, let me, let me ask you then tonight, if you, if you had to choose between no suffering and no goodness or suffering and much goodness, which would it be? Is the goodness of God preferable in your affliction? It was to the psalmist. But notice why. It wasn't just that he loved pain. The psalmist gives us the reason why he considered his suffering good. In that second line of verse 71, in order, he says, 
that I may learn your statutes. That's why it was good that I was afflicted. It was good that I was afflicted because I learned. I learned about you. The goodness of God's purpose is here laid out explicitly, specifically, the good sought by the psalmist, the good preferred by the psalmist was learning about his God. Is that good for you? Is that the highest good for you? This is specifically what makes affliction good. Affliction, the psalmist says here, is good because it teaches us God's statutes. It instructs us. Affliction is the good school that instructs us in God's statutes. This is the language of discipleship, a divine education that the psalmist received. So Spurgeon says, very little is to be learned without affliction. If we would be scholars, we must be sufferers. There is no royal road to learning the royal statutes. God's commands are best read by eyes wet with tears. It's true, isn't it? You know this experientially, some of you. Psalm 94, verse 12, blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Christian, we, we are in need of education in the Christian life. And some things can only be learned through affliction. So do, do you delight in learning God's Word to this degree? Is it the highest good for you? If not, then this last verse will make no sense. Notice, not, not only... Is the goodness of God with affliction more preferable than a life without trouble? Lastly, verse 72, the the psalmist concludes also that the goodness of God's Word is more preferable than all the riches in the world. We'll just end it here, verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The Word of God is uniquely described here as the law of God's mouth, literally, and it it reminds us um, of Matthew 4, 4, where he quotes from Deuteronomy 8. Remember Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, replied, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds, right, out of the mouth of God. Do you hang on every word? Do you treasure every word? That which is breathed out, out of the mouth of a good and gracious God. What God says, what God utters, what God breathes is more sustaining and life-giving and valuable to the psalmist than all the riches the world could ever offer. Do you have the same estimation of the Word of God tonight? Do you have this conviction? Of course, this is all over Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 127. We'll get there eventually. The psalmist would say there, therefore, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Psalm 19, verse 10. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. In Proverbs three thirteen through 15, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding, for her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than, the fi- than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Is that your attitude towards the word of God? Do you prefer the goodness of God's word to all the treasure you might gain in this life, all the comfort that you might have apart from affliction? And so one writer says this, the word of God must be nearer to us 
than our friends, dearer to us than our lives, sweeter to us than our liberty, and pleasanter to us than all earthly comforts. And I'll just end here with these questions from Charles Bridges. True, this is a correct estimate of the worth of God's law, better than this world's treasure, but, Christian, is it better to me? Is this my decided choice? How many will inconsiderately acknowledge its supreme value while they yet hesitate to relinquish even a scanty morsel of earth for an interest in it? Do I then habitually prefer, ask yourself this, do I then habitually prefer this law of God's mouth to every worldly advantage? Am I ready to forgo every selfish consideration if it may only be the means of uniting my heart more closely to the book of God? If this be not my practical conviction, I fear I have not yet opened the mind. Lord, these are convictions we must have about the goodness of God. The goodness of God is purposeful in our affliction. The goodness of God is persistent through our affliction. And the goodness of God is preferable in our afflictions. Do you have these convictions? Do you believe these things about God and His Word? I pray that you will. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for how you have given us this section to examine our own hearts by. We pray, Lord, that you would indeed cultivate in us all that this psalmist believed so that in times of trouble, when we might be tempted to think that you are not good. May we may we run the other direction. May these be convictions for us so that we might ascribe to you the fullness of your glory and to believe in every way and trust that you are indeed good no matter what we face in this life. Lord, help us to pray as the psalmist prayed here. Help us to believe that in all of your dealings with us, you are faithful and you are kind and you are good. For indeed you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.